God, we honor you and, and worship you. We've, we've lifted up uh, songs uh, declaring your grace and your greatness and the, the, the glory of Christ and the wonder of the gospel. And now we have the opportunity, Father, to come around your word today and, and to see how that precious, powerful, soul-saving, life-changing gospel will advance in our lives and by advancing in our lives, advance to those around us. Father, we gather here this morning because we are gospel people. We have had the privilege to be able to hear the gospel, to be able to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and by your grace, Lord, have responded in faith and repentance. And so now, Father, you, you, you have made us a, a people of your own possession, a, a people of the gospel, a people for your beloved Son. And now we ask you, God, to just continue to challenge us and change us and grow us in you today. That this way of gospel advance that we read of in Philippians, that we hear of in the life of Paul would be evident in our lives as well. God, it is our prayer to see the, the gospel living by the power of the gospel, living in the transforming, delightful, joyful power of the gospel would be evident in our own lives. But even beyond that, Father, that... that that through us, that we would simply be instruments and vessels and tools in your hand, that through us, Lord, the gospel would advance around us, Lord, in our families, in our, in our friend group, in, in, our, in, our, in our social circles, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and ultimately, Father, to the ends of the earth. So would you speak and move and accomplish your will today? We're, we're going to give you the glory for, for every bit of it. Lord, would you especially guard my mind and, and thoughts and mannerisms and expressions and everything that I would in no way be a distraction today? Father, help us as... as your word is opened as your spirit is moving and your word is alive and Christ is here with us that, Lord, you would be the focus of our attention and your speaking to us would grab our hearts. Do a great work, Father, for the greatness of your name. In Christ's name, amen. So when, when Paul writes in verse 21 of chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He has aptly described the, the whole of the Christian life in 11 words. To live is Christ means that Christ is everything. We just sang it, right? All I have is Christ. He is my life. 
To have him and nothing else is to have everything. And to have everything and not have Christ is in the end to have nothing. Nothing at all. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Christ himself awaits his people in glory. In this life, we have him by faith. In the life to come, we have him by sight. And that is gain. That is gain, or as Paul puts it in verse 23 of this chapter, beholding our Savior in glory is, he says, far better, far better than anything we behold here. So we called verse 21 Paul's life verse or Paul's treasure verse because in its sacred succinctness, it, it captures and defines life in Christ and, and light and Christ as our treasure in death. And now in our text today, in these closing verses of the first chapter, Paul is exhorting us and compelling us to follow him on this path of holy joy. The gospel of Christ is, is being advanced through Paul's life. That's evident in this little book. And it's because of his singular focus on Christ. His, his life revolves around Christ, is rooted in Christ. It's all about Christ. So much so that even in the worst of circumstances, Paul has already told us his circumstances, he is imprisoned. He says in verse 12 of chapter 1 about his imprisonment, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. The way of gospel advance. So Paul's testimony throughout chapter 1 is this, is this way of gospel advance. The way the gospel usually advances. It's, it's normal path. And that's what we're reading about really throughout chapter 1. This is the path of, of, of clearing the clutter, clearing the way for the gospel to, to come alive and, and to take root and, and to be expressive and explosive in our own lives as believers so that the gospel advances among unbelievers around us. Gospel advance, the way of gospel advance. And so the first thing we see in verse 27 is that gospel faith requires gospel living. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only. So Paul is saying it really boils down to this. It, it gets as simple as this. This is the one thing. This is the main thing. This is the singular focus of our lives who have been brought to life in Christ. This is it. He says, only this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Your manner of life and the way you live, the characteristic of your life, the direction, the flavor of your life. 
our attitude, our, our actions, our words, our habits, our hobbies, our pursuits, our interactions, our relationships, our, our life, our manner of living. Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let it be such that it displays the gospel of Christ, that that it shines the gospel of Christ, that, that it shows the gospel of Christ to be worthy, to be a treasure. Our lives then must match, they must coincide with, they must confirm our profession. Our lives must profess our profession of faith. Believing in Christ and living for Christ go together. Christ as our Savior and Christ as our Lord go together. What we claim to possess on the inside must shine bright. And shine forth on the outside. Where Christ resides, he presides. What we treasure, you see, what what we treasure defines our lives. It directs our lives. It, It determines the manner of our lives. So Paul says, only let, only let your manner of life this path of holy joy, this way of gospel advancement, it, it, it comes down to this for each and every believer. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your life shine the gospel. He goes on to say, so, so that whether I come and see you or, or I'm absent, I, I'm not able to come, that I will hear of you. That I'll hear about this manner of life being worthy of the gospel of Christ. You, you see, when Christ is our all, word gets around. People take notice when something is different or unusual or unexpected or peculiar or out of place with the ordinary or counter culture. People take notice. Now, some may appreciate it, and some may make fun of it, but they won't be able to ignore it. Word gets around. Paul says, if I'm able to be there and see it for myself or not, then I will at least hear of it. Word gets around. When God's people, when we love others as God loves us, when we forgive others as God has forgiven us, When our hope is rooted in Christ and not in the things of this world, when we cling to holiness and renounce sin in our lives, when our mouths are filled with worship and not with complaining, people take notice. When God is on the move and lives are being transformed and shining the gospel, Gospel light is not, is not any light that's of the world. It, it's otherworldly. It's supernatural. It's out of this world. 
It's not of man. It's of God. And, And when that light begins to shine through people and people's lives begin to testimony and, and, and to witness of the power of God's transforming power, people take notice. Word gets around. God is up to something. God's doing something over there in that family. God's doing something over there in that church, in, in that community. Why, why do you know? People are different. Go talk to them. Go hang around them. They're different. They don't talk like everybody else. They don't spend their money like everybody else. They they don't interact. They they don't treat people. They're different. Word gets around. Let let me hear. He goes on to say that. So so what what is Paul wanting to hear? What what particularly would be such the the word, the the grapevine around the lives of the people in Philippi, the church in Philippi, that, that would attest to them living lives worthy of the gospel. Paul says, let me hear of this, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Two ways, Paul says here, that that evidence our manner of life is worthy of the gospel, standing firm and striving for the faith of the gospel of Christ. Those words, standing firm, means simply holding your ground. Many of you went through the, the, the spiritual armor of God study. That was our previous study for the women and men's study. And, and, and all throughout that passage, and in, in, in that passage on the armor of God, it, it continues to say, stand firm. Holding our ground. In, in other words, not giving the world, not, not giving even our own sinful, inclined flesh. Not giving the, the enemy, not, not giving one single inch of ground. Stand firm. In other words, not compromising truth, not compromising the gospel, not compromising the scripture, not compromising Christ for anything else because anything else is lesser. Anything else is unsatisfying. And why would we do that? Well, what did Paul say previously? Because we found something far better. What we found in Christ and what we found in the gospel is far better. You see, when we realize the the priceless treasure that Christ is and the glory of the gospel and the the transforming power, the delivering power, the saving power, the the hope-filled power of the gospel, we realize that what we have in God is far, far better than anything we could ever have in the world. You know, here's a truth. You don't compromise if you truly believe what you've got is better. You don't compromise for what you believe is lesser. You compromise when when we believe, and we all do this from time to time as sinners. That's what sin is. We all do this from time to time. We fall into the deception and the, the delusion that this over here on the other side of the fence, the grass really is greener. 
And it's not. When we get over there, we find out it's not. And we have to repent and come back. Compromise happens when we believe that what we don't have in Christ is better than Christ. That's how God defines sin in the book of Jeremiah. He says, it's appalling because my people, God says, my people have left me and they've dug cisterns in the ground that can hold no water. And I'm the fountain of life. That's when we compromise. So Paul says, here's here's when our manner of life is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Standing firm. Holding your ground. Uncompromising. And secondly, striving for the faith. That's the imagery of, 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 of battle. Striving. Working. Training. Not on the sidelines, on the front lines. We don't need more people filling the bleachers. They're full. We need people out in the battle, advancing the gospel, taking up the armor of God, not letting it rust sitting on the ground, fighting the good fight of faith. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Striving for the faith, that is taking down lies. Taking down worldly philosophy and ideology around us. Cutting through the deceptive schemes of the enemy and the world and the flesh. Casting aside what so easily weighs us down and keeps us from striving for the faith. If we don't realize we are at war, church, we're already defeated. Satan wants nothing more than our testimony, our joy, and if he can have it, our soul. This is not a game. Church is not a game. The gospel... Faith in Christ is war. You know what we do, though? We spend way too much time and energy fighting one another and picking at one another and judging one another and upping one another and comparing one another than locking arm in arm and striving for the faith of the gospel. And resisting the devil. Paul says, let me hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So within that, he gives us the only strategy for victory, really. He says that with one mind you're striving, here it is, side by side. That church is the only way side by side we engage the enemy as an army not as a lone ranger the enemy loves to see a soldier on the battlefield all by himself all by herself all alone because that makes for easy prey 
That's an easy one to take down when, he's, when he or she is not around others in the fellowship being encouraged, being motivated, being held accountable, being taught, learning, growing, loving, serving. If he can get us separated from the rest and get us out here by ourselves. And there are three basic ways the enemy does this to us. Three basic ways the enemy will separate us from the protection of fellowship. This, this is why God puts us together. We need each other. Number one, he entices us with sin. You ever notice when, when a believer allows sin to creep in their life and they begin to cling to that sin and clutch to that sin you ever notice how they begin to back off of the fellowship? They begin to back off of their personal time with God. They begin to back off of church. And they're all alone. Out of the fellowship. That's why it's so important, church. It's so important to be watching over each other. Because in, 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 a, in a church like this, when people are busy coming and going, it's easy for somebody to separate from the fellowship for three months, four months, five months, six months, and nobody be aware. This is why we're doing the deacon family ministry. What's going on in someone's lives when they separate from the fellowship? He entices us with sin. Another thing the enemy does, he, he gets us put out with someone in the church. We get put out with one another, don't we? We get on each other's nerves, don't we? Now, you should have said amen there. <laughs> we get put out with each other, or, or we don't like something at the church. Now, I'm not saying churches are perfect. None of us are. I'm not saying there's work that doesn't need to be done things that don't need to be improved, things that don't need to be changed. There's that bad word. Preacher, you got to quit saying those bad words in the pulpit like change. But if we can get put out or hurt by somebody in the church or by something going on in the church, he can separate us. We stop going to church. We get put out with the fellowship. Not too long, we get put out with Christ. Here's another thing. Here's the third thing the enemy will do. He will distract us. He will distract us with the trinkets and the pursuits of this world. Man, they will get our attention, won't they? The useless, meaningless, eternally valueless trinkets and pursuits of this world will grab our hearts, grab our pocketbooks, grab our calendar, grab our time, grab our affection, and take us right out of the fellowship. We'll hit the road for months at the time. And pretty soon we're not we're not we're not in fellowship, we're not walking with God, we're 
Here's the only strategy for victory, church. Side by side. We got to be together. We got to be together. Warts and all. We need each other. Do you know the word church means assembly? It doesn't mean a bunch of individuals scattered, it means assembly. Gathered. God has put us into a family. And this is, we're trying to encourage that as a church. That's why we have these Bible studies. That's why we have small groups with our students. That's why we have SEAL teams with our men. We're trying to get together and, and encourage and hold accountable and learn and grow. We can only stand firm and strive for the faith when we are arm in arm. That's the strategy for victory. But Paul also, in these words that he's saying, he's also given us the only hope for victory, which is unity. Unity. You see what Paul says here? Standing firm in one spirit. With one mind striving for the faith. Oneness is absolutely essential to advance the gospel. There is no church on the planet advancing the gospel in our homes and in our communities that's divided. Nowhere. And being in the same place at the same time, like right here, right now, does not necessarily mean unity, church. Unity means of the same spirit with, with one mind, with one spirit. You see, if the enemy can divide us, he might not can separate us, but maybe he can get you on one side or the other. Maybe he can divide us over some of the most secondary, tertiary things possible. Unity doesn't come naturally or easily. We need to confess that. We need to acknowledge it. It just doesn't happen. We have to strive for it. It doesn't come naturally or easily because everybody wants their own way and everyone thinks their way is the right way. We all fall into that. So here's here some, here some hard things that unity requires. Unity requires humility. You got to be humble. You got to have a group of humble people to have unity. You get a bunch of prideful people together, there's no unity. We've got to have humility. We've got to have forgiveness. We've got to be able to forgive each other to have unity because we're going to wrong each other. We're going to rub each other. You've got to have forgiveness to have unity. You've got to have self-denial, don't you? You've got to have self-denial because no matter if you are 110% right, you can't get your way every time. You've got 
got to have self-denial to have unity. Y'all looking at me like I'm odd or saying something strange. <laughs> you got to have self-denial. You, you, you have to put others' interest in front of yours to have unity. Unity is difficult to obtain. It's difficult to maintain. In fact, the only unifier, the great unifier, is the gospel. That's it. Let's stop making mountains out of molehills. It's the gospel. It's advancing the gospel. Not advancing my preference, my way. So what does it take? What do we got to let go of and cling to the gospel? That's the unifier. That's the thing that can't be compromised. The scripture, the gospel, reaching the lost, being on mission, worshiping, evangelizing, fellowship, encouraging. The only strategy side by side, the only Hope for this victory is unity. And so verse 27 is, Paul is calling us to our lives to match our profession. The second thing we see in verse 28 is expected opposition is simply an indicator. In other words, we, we, we are to expect opposition, right? We, we live in a fallen world. We are light shining in darkness as believers. We, we are expecting opposition, and, and we are to see it as simply an indicator, a testifier. My Jeep's been out of commission this week. I hope tomorrow to get it back in commission, but... The first thing I needed was a battery. I wish that's all I needed, but the first thing I needed was a battery. And, and when you test a battery, it, it indicates you got a good battery or you got a bad battery. It's an indicator. It's a clear sign, Paul says. Look at verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So in the same way, the opposition to the gospel is an indicator, and a clear sign, an affirmation of. And it indicates two truths simultaneously. Paul says this is just a clear sign of, of two things here. The first clear sign of opposition to the gospel, those who oppose the gospel are dwelling in darkness. Those who oppose the light dwell in the darkness. And opposing the gospel light is a, a clear indication of, of their enslavement to sin and their soon coming destruction. When people oppose us for living for the gospel, truly living for the gospel, truly speaking for the gospel, then it, it really it, it begins to show us how to pray for them, doesn't it? Because if you oppose the light, you're in darkness. 
And there's, there's only destruction, darkness, the sin of darkness, the, the fog and haze and deception of sin only leads to destruction, both here in this life and life eternal apart from Christ. So opposition to us, if we are truly living the gospel and sharing the gospel, shouldn't make us angry, shouldn't, shouldn't take us by surprise, but, but should break our hearts for those who are opposing the gospel because we know what that means. That's a clear indication. They're not in Christ. But then it serves as another, it, it, it's two truths. It, it serves also as a clear sign of salvation. Those who are willing and, and, and ready to face and endure opposition for the, gospel, for the sake of the gospel, that's a clear sign, that's a clear indication, that's a clear testimony that they have been rescued from the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of light, and they are shining bright. That's why they're being opposed. So Paul says, don't be frightened by anything. This is a clear sign of your salvation. And and he says, and guess what? And that's from God. God did that. God brought you into the light. God is using your life as a testimony. God is at work in your heart and in your life. That's why the opposition is coming. God's at work. Opposition Opposition to the gospel doesn't come where God's not at work. So he says, don't, don't, don't be frightened about that because it's telling you, you are truly saved. God is truly at work. And, and guess what? If this is for God, if this is from God, it can't be taken. Don't be frightened by the opposition. Your salvation can't be taken away. It can't be shamed out of you. It can't be beaten out of you. It can't be drug out of you. It can't be killed out of you. Don't be frightened. We can expect opposition, but we don't need to fear it. We can face it with faith. There's something about gospel opposition. Gospel opposition has never achieved its goal. Don't, don't be frightened in anything by, by your opponents who, who oppose the gospel because the purpose of gospel opposition, the goal, the aim of gospel opposers have never been achieved. The gospel has never been silenced. It's only been advanced. It only advances. That's the way of gospel advance. It disrupts and disturbs the normalcy of sinful ways and so causes opposition. Opposition is a sign that the gospel is moving, that God is doing something. And so we can expect to face this opposition but see it as a clear sign, a clear testimony, a clear confirmation. But then that opposition, that expected opposition, really leads us to the third point, which is suffering for Christ's sake is really the normal path. If we can expect opposition, then we can kind of expect suffering, can't we? 
And so Paul says in verses 29 and 30, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. It's kind of the normal path. Paul tells the church at Philippi, God God has a special gift coming your way. God God has a big box of blessing coming your way. And we hear that often from preachers in our day, and we're thinking, oh boy, I can't can't wait to see what what God is, is giving us. Maybe it's a brand new car. Maybe it's a brand new house. Maybe it's a promotion. Maybe I'm going to excel at something. Maybe I might even have the winning ticket to the mega million. God's got a big box of blessing coming my way. Can't be anything but health, wealth, or prosperity or success, right? That's the only way we know how to define God's blessings. God's gifts. God's gifts. Paul said, this suffering you're getting ready to have that you see I'm having is a gift. It's a good thing, in other words. God don't give bad gifts, does he? It's actually none of those things that we would first think of. God's great gift... Paul says that you, it's been granted to you, it's been given to you, it's been blessed to you that you are going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of Christ, you're going to go through some hardship, some opposition, some persecution. You're going to be tried by fire. You're, you're, you're going to be put to the test. You see, we have in in our affluent, tech-advanced age developed a a really modified, diluted version of Christianity that's not to be found in the New Testament. But ours is a comfort, full, trouble-free Christian faith. The only way we know how to define a blessing is it's got to be one of those one of those good things we think of, health, wealth, success, prosperity. We, we've lost the concept that more often than not, believing in him entails suffering with him. Paul said, through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. When we grab onto the hand of Christ, we are clinging to a nail-scarred hand. And he says, follow me. In fact, he goes on to say, doesn't he? Remember, if you would come after me, if you would go where I am going, deny yourself, take up your cross. In other words, you're going to suffer and follow me. 
if we really believe, here's the uncompromising church, if we really believe, verse 21, that if we are in Christ, to die is gain. That's the only way we cling to him through the suffering. Willing to go through the suffering, endure the suffering, count the cost, pay the price. When trouble comes our way, we often, our first inclination is to doubt God, to question God, to be angry with God, to blame God for not keeping us what? Comfortable and trouble free. We blame God for not doing what He never said He was going to do. We really need to read the Bible, church. Do you know how to guarantee a life free? From suffering for Christ, just live without him. Just live without him. Why do we assume a crown without a cross? That wasn't the path of the Savior. That wasn't the path of the apostles. That hasn't been the path of the church through over 2,000 years of church history. This passage, though, is not, is not really addressing general sufferings of, of life, is it? We, we've all experienced, I mean, if, if you live in this life, I mean, you, we try to build these fortresses to keep us from suffering. We, our, our, our wealth fortress, our social fortress... We, we, try to, we try to build these fortresses to keep us from any type of suffering, but it just seems to still get in. The cancer just seems to get through all of those barriers. We, we still suffer. And in a general sense, we suffer. But this passage is talking not about a general sense, is it, but a, but a suffering for the specific reason of the sake of Christ, the gospel. Because the gospel is so evident in our lives and in, in our purposes and our actions that we're facing consequences for being gospel people, Jesus-loving people. If we live our life for Christ, we will more than likely face opposition and suffering. It may come from family ostracizing you. It may come from friends unfriending you. It may come from getting the cold shoulder. It may come from costing you a promotion or even costing you your job. To many of our brothers and sisters around the world today, it's costing a whole lot more. It'll cost at some level for living for, standing for the gospel. I really hesitate. I really hesitate to share this. I've never shared it in public. I keep praying, and I think I should. 
This, this is the fourth church that I've pastored. It's interesting. I, I've suffered, I've faced opposition more within the church than I ever had without. I guess that's being a pastor, I guess, comes with the territory. You know, my second church that I pastored, I was there for 17 months. And I was preaching my guts out. I mean, I was preaching as hard as I could go. In fact, I was preaching through Philippians. Word got around town, hey, that pastor will talk to you in his office, and he won't beat you with the Bible, but he will open it up and talk to you. People started coming. I was counseling all the time, preaching three times a week, going to pray with people in the hospital, calling some things out in the church that didn't need to be in the church. I came one Sunday to preach and the congregation voted on my ministry and half of the congregation said, I don't want you to be our pastor anymore. I left that day. No job, no home, a wife and two little kids. You think you won't suffer for the gospel if you live for Christ? You will. That was a hard day. But God's faithful, isn't he? So let me speak as, I, as I'm closing, winding down today. Let, let me speak to the ones who are listening, who are living for Christ with all you got. I don't know how, how many that is of us, but, but you are clinging. to It's hard sometimes, but you are clinging to faith. You're barely hanging on sometimes, but you, you're living for Christ with all you got. Here's two things you need to know when you suffer for his sake, because you will. Number one, it is common. It is common. You are not alone. You walk into the high school and you get made fun of for your faith in Christ, you are not alone. It is common for the people of God to suffer for the sake of Christ. Paul says in verse 30, you're going to be engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the way. This is the way of gospel advance. It's common. Suffering has always been the way of gospel advance. In fact, the places on the planet today that are experiencing the greatest moves of God are the places that are also experiencing the heaviest persecution. When you press, when the enemy presses the church, it bleeds revival. And that's why Paul says it's been granted to you. So number one, when you suffer for the sake of the gospel, it is common. You're not alone. But number two, listen, it's a gift. It's a gift. It's a good thing that God is doing. God's not mad at you. God hasn't forgotten you. God hasn't neglected you. He has simply found you worthy to suffer for the greatness of his name. Listen to this. Listen to this. When we suffer for his name and yet we keep 
praising and we keep believing and we keep going. We don't give up or give in or compromise or settle. When we keep praising God with all that is within us as we are being crushed, it shows the world that Christ is really treasure. Because no matter what happens for clinging to him, I'm not going to let him go. That's why Job said, God, if you slay me, I'm still going to praise your name. He is worthy, and he is worth it. That's why in Acts 5, you remember that story in Acts 5? The apostles were preaching the gospel, preaching Christ, and they gathered, the council gathered them, arrested them, beat them, put them in prison, and then they finally let them go. And what did they say? The Bible says in Acts 5, they left that place rejoicing that they were found worthy to suffer for his great name. It's the way of gospel advance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, would you, would you have your way in our hearts? Lord, as your people, raise up a people that are unashamed of the gospel of Christ, not belligerent, not self-righteous, not legalistic and requiring everybody to live by our own rules, but people who are so in love with Christ and so in love with the gospel that it means everything to us and it saturates everything about us so that we can't help but shine light. God, would you, would you continue to fashion us and, and transform us to be that kind of gospel people that the gospel may advance in our homes and our hearts and in Grassy Pond and in Cherokee County and to the ends of the earth. This is the way of gospel advance. Lord, we know there'll be some opposition along the way. There'll be some suffering along the way, but if we'll strive for unity, if we'll stay side by side, we can stand firm in the gospel and strive for the faith together. God, do a work in us. If we are apart from Christ today, Lord, wake us from our slumber. Wake, lift us from our sin and draw us to saving faith in Christ today. Today's the day. Time to get off the sidelines and get on the court, get on the field, get in the fight. Lord, have your will and way, we pray in Christ's name, amen.